0: Judging by the attendance at this morning, maybe Claire was right. My first critic of this sermon series was dead. It was long and confusing. So maybe, uh, maybe she was on to something. Uh, nonetheless, uh, the few but the proud, right? Um, this morning, we're moving forward from the covenant of works, uh, moving from it finally and unto the covenant of grace. I put this little chart together here um, just so that you can kind of see. I'm going to put forward a chart, I think, next week that will then be uh, similar, but it will be the covenant of grace. So so just to kind of summarize, because we're moving out of the covenant of works portion with Adam and God, and Adam as our federal head or representative in the covenant, we're moving forward now um, into the covenant of grace. So just by way of summary, with our definition of covenant, this is how the covenant of works would break down in your, in your own mind. Of How is the passage speaking of all men underneath a covenantal relationship with God? Um, again, it's, as we've mentioned before and came up again in our time in small group, it, it, the, the point of, of, of evangelism, once again, is not do you want a relationship with God? But as we understand, by virtue of being created and coming from Adam and Eve as fellow human beings through natural generation, all men and all women have a relationship with God. Uh, the question uh, once again becomes, what type or of what kind of relationship do you want to God? Because you have one by virtue of the covenant of works. So the parties involved in the covenant um, was, uh, were God and Adam. Now, if we were to mark by way of uh, reason, we'd say Adam was the head or a federal representative of all mankind. So in that sense, we could say the parties involved in the Covenant of Works, the two parties that came together in the Covenant of Works would be God and mankind. As goes Adam, so goes the rest of um, of humanity. And we know that by uh, additional texts in the Bible, but also as we look at Romans 5, that there are those two parallelisms. That, that there's Christ, either all men are represented uh, in Adam and the elect in Christ. These are the two heads that we relate to. So God and Adam here in Genesis are the parties involved. The conditions of the covenant, and this is the critical piece um, that we're going to uh, expand upon this morning to recognize the distinction between what's being laid out in the covenant of works and what's being laid out in a covenant of grace it is that issue of conditionality, the conditions of the covenant. For Adam in the garden from Genesis 3 of what we see, the conditions for Adam were perfect perpetual obedience. That, that there, there, was, there was absolutely no other elements whereby Adam could say, okay, I'll receive that condition of the covenant, and maybe we can make it work. This is the condition of the covenant that God condescended to make with Adam, was that Adam must offer unto God perfect and perpetual obedience. Now, the duration of that covenant, we simply don't have access to know how long was the covenantal arrangement going to last. Until Adam could say, I've done it. I I, I have indeed loved God with all my heart, soul, and mind. And that's been manifest in my life of obedience. How long the duration of that arrangement was to be, we just simply don't know. And really, at this point, for all intents and purposes, it doesn't matter. It didn't last. But the conditions were perfect and perpetual obedience for as long as the duration of the covenantal arrangement was made. The blessings then that were put forward with blessing and cursing offered in the covenantal um, kind of, uh, if you were to think of it in a documented kind of uh, paper or a legislative document, you look at here are the blessings that are offered in this perfect obedience. Here is what will be conferred upon you, Adam. Eternal life as God's people in paradise. That would, that would have been the conferred blessing. And that would have been unto Adam, but then again as representative to all his posterity as well. So there would have been a movement of eternal life. Uh, Those who were born into a condition uh, that Adam was also in, they would have entered into that paradise with God and all of his posterity. Sin would have just not been possible. The other element is the curse. What what is the punishment? So said blessing is um, you can take of that tree, pluck it, the tree of life, and you can eat it and consume it. You will therein enter into the blessings of the covenant. The curse was death, physically and spiritually. Um, You remember that in the passage where he says to Adam, um, you may eat of all the trees of the garden, but of this tree you shall not. And the day that you would so do, you die. That was what happened. So then when God came to Adam and Eve in the story uh, in Genesis 3, he says, what have you done? What did you do? In the arrangement, what have you done? Did you do what I expressly told you in the arrangement not to do? I told you not to do this. Did you do that? And yes, he did. Then there's only one response that I can have, and it is the curse of the covenant must fall. Death, physically and spiritually. So, again, important for us as we now move from this covenant arrangement into the covenant of grace is that Adam's complete and perfect obedience was required and that in this covenantal arrangement, as you see, there was no room for the forgiveness of sin. There There was no room for sin at all. There was no way that in this covenant arrangement Adam could sin and it was going to go forward. There was no option and there was no room for Adam's failure. There was no grading on a curve, no wiggle room at all. It was absolute. The covenant comes to Adam like this. And you hear it a little bit later, and maybe we'll get into this another time. You hear it a little bit later in the Levitical Codes. Do this of what I command you, and you will live. Don't do as I have commanded you, and you will surely die. That is the language of the covenant of works, And as we know then from our last couple of weeks, Adam transgressed that covenant. And so he did experience this death. Death, what was uh, not inevitable, now is an absolute part of the human condition. Death um, is now uh, inevitable for all of us who are born. And yet, there was two elements where God showed mercy... You remember, there was a temporal postponement of divine wrath. So, in other words, Adam and Eve could have died right then and there, right? Like, if you eat, if you do of what I've commanded you not to do, and you do it, the curse will fall, death, physical and spiritual. Now, how could that have been executed or meted out in a fair manner according to God's justice? Well, they could have just been obliterated, gone, over, removed, dead, right then and there. Physically, boom, gone, dust, but he didn't, and yet it would have been justly so, and he didn't. Remember, he made a, a, a promise, an initial promise. He said, um, the woman's going to have some offspring. That indicated to Adam immediately, I don't think we're going to die in the next 30 seconds. He, he, he's pledging, he's saying to Satan that we are going to have offspring. The, 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 he, there's a measure of mercy there. A temporal postponement of divine wrath. And then as the, as the prophecy moves forward in Genesis 3 of the Covenant of works, there's a promised future of restoration. You remember, one of the woman's offspring is going to crush the serpent's head. So there's this initial, you know, kind of feeling that you know that's it, the end of the line is here, and then you hear this statement to the serpent that there's going to be offspring of the woman. You think, wait. So we're not. Wait, am I still here? Yeah, and there's this prophecy about offspring. And then you find out not only through this offspring will duration and time continue, but in the end, we're going to win. We're going to be restored. Eve, my, my, my wife, is going to have a, a, a definitive son. One of Eve's offspring He's going to come, and she is going, he is going to crush the serpent's head. That's the initial promise of the next covenantal arrangement, which is the covenant of grace. And again, I'm saying it's an initial promise. Let me just read it for you just briefly. You're familiar, and you don't have to turn there. Stay in Genesis 11, because that's where we're going now. But let me just read for you once again the initial promise of what we're going to look at now for the next couple of moments of the covenant of grace. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Again, this this lapsing of divine wrath, it's temporally postponed. I will put enmity, a war will exist between the woman, uh, you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And then here's what is called often the very first comment of the gospel. In the Bible. Forward looking in this covenant, in this promise, he, the woman's offspring, shall bruise your head. Again, forward looking, the prophecy so says, or the word of the gospel here, you, serpent, shall bruise his heel. Now, to that initial promise of the gospel, or that initial comment of the covenant arrangement, we call the covenant of grace. It materializes with the man Abraham. So here it's initially given out, of which you're familiar. So if you would, if you are there, look at Genesis 11. And the point of now Genesis 11, and we're going to skip kind of, obviously we're skipping uh, several chapters here, but don't worry, we're going through Genesis 1 through 11 coming up, so we'll we'll hit all these pieces. But this morning I'm going to hit Genesis 11, and then I want to touch on Genesis 15 as well. Because in Genesis 3, we're hearing the initial word of the promise, the initial word of the covenant. Now let's kind of skip from 3, let's hit 11, and let's enter into the life of the man Abram. Or as I'm just going to, I'm just going to move forward. That many of you know that he changes, his name is changed to Abraham. So I'm going to be calling him Abraham. But but we're we're entering into his life in Genesis 11 to see this promise in Genesis 3 begins to materialize. Very particularly and more specifically in the life of this man Abraham. And then in 15 we'll see it actually is ceremonially made to Abraham, the covenant that's promised is materialized in Abraham, very specifically. Now, I'm going to read uh, what was just read, 27 through 32. And the point of this passage um, is to note, just one thing, let it stand out to you. The the radical difference between God's dealing with Abraham and God's dealing with Adam. That's what I'm trying to draw your attention to for the next couple of moments. The radical difference between how God dealt with Adam and how God is dealing with Abraham. This is, that's the significant piece here in Genesis 11. Let me begin by reading verse 27 through 32 and just kind of draw your attention once again to the passage. We're picking up now in this covenant of grace that is now being materialized in the man Abraham. Verse 27, now these are the generations of Terah. And it's just filling in the data to you to know what are we about to learn about or who are we about to discuss. And he's moving through this genealogy that happened in in verse 10 all the way through to really zero in now through all the genealogical information. He's he's getting ready to make a huge transition into a particular person's story that we're picking up with, and it's the man Abram. Now, this is what's significant. These are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram. Nahor, Haran, and Haran father Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred. Which note carefully to yourself what is the land of his kindred? Ur of the Chaldeans. This is where Abram is, right? So verse 27, he is in the land of the Ur, or in the land of Ur of the Chaldeans. Verse 29, and Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Verse 30, now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Which you all know, that's a significant piece he's filling in for you now to prep you or to to pump your, uh, to prime your pump, to get ready to read the narrative stories of significance. By the way, going into the story, know this. Abram is from Ur, and Sarai is barren. Those are significant pieces that he's filling in for you as you move forward. Verse 31, Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, two things stand out to us, which explain to us the very essence of the covenant of grace. And they're they're not kind of little observations that are maybe perhaps noteworthy. They're significant that we're learning here, significant for the very essence of the covenant of grace. And I'm going to give away my conclusion here, and I have one more sermon next week on the covenant of grace that that, will be important for us and understand the whole kind of structural apparatus. But to those whose faith this moment rests and resides in and terminates upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you are in the covenant of grace. that's what this is doing. Now, now, from from you as a believer whose faith resides or terminates, its terminal point is the Lord Jesus Christ, who then is a covenantal member in the covenant of his graciousness. The very essence of your covenantal arrangement with him is here expressed in two very important ways. Number one, the first thing that stands out to us in the short reading about this man Abram from Ur is precisely that nothing stands out to us about Abram from Ur. That belongs to the very essence of the covenant of grace. I just said, what stands out to us about the man Abram is that nothing stands out to us about the man Abram. You see, he's no one Noteworthy. But then you remember as a child singing, Father Abraham has many sons. Many sons has Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. But you're like, wait a minute. Oh, I thought he, he is everything to the, to the life of the church. To think about the theology, the ecclesiology, the history of the, of the Christian church. Abram! And yet, what do we find out very first thing about him? Is that he is no one noteworthy. You see... This is of the essence of the covenant of God's graciousness. You see, in the covenant arrangement of grace, it is not that people make themselves into the kind of people that God approves of. This is important for you to understand about how the gospel comes to you. It is not, in the covenant of grace, it is not that people make themselves into the kind of people that God approves And then, based upon his approval of you, he lets you join in covenant with him. This is of the essence of our covenant relationship with God. We're not in his covenant of grace because we compelled him to put us there. This is what we learn initially, even with Abram. As one author notes very well, he says, In the covenant of grace, God, out of his own graciousness, comes and chooses people who have nothing of merit and who cannot deserve it and enters into a covenant of graciousness with them. You see, this is exactly how we find Abraham doing absolutely nothing To deserve it. Right? These are the generations of of, of Terah. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred. Where are they? They're in Ur of the Chaldeans. Who's there? Abram is there. You see, he's a pagan. That's who Abram is. At this point, historically speaking, Abram is most likely, a consensus of research would say, a very fair consensus, you can bank on it, a fair consensus, is that Abram, at this point, is a moon worshiper. That's where we find him. That's where Moses moves through the genealogy to say, Abram's coming! And look who he was when God found him. He was a pagan moon worshiper. And yet this is the nature of the covenant of grace that God is beginning to establish with him. That God, without condition, elects Abram unto saving grace. The second thing that stands out to us about The very essence of the covenant of grace is again that there is nothing that stands out about Abram. He's just your standard moon worshiping pagan, and God shows him electing love. And the second piece that we see here is that God unilaterally promises to bless Abram. So he elects him uh, to saving grace. And you'll see that in just one brief moment. But look at verse now. We're going to transition into chapter 12, which is a part of the same narrative as we move forward. Moses drawing our attention through the entire genealogical history to one particular individual. And we see that God unilaterally chooses to bless Abram. Uh, l- look at how we find Abram um, once again. In, he's, he, he's in Haran, right? And, and verse 1 starts. And Moses says, Now... The Lord said to Abram, right right, right there is is, is significant. Here he is, is is a Chaldean, worshipping a false God. And yet the God of creation condescends and addresses Abram. Not because there's prior conditions in Abram that compel God to speak to him. Quite to the contrary. He died in Adam, just like all mankind. And here is a manifestation of his own wickedness. He's worshiping a false god. But God takes the initiative and he speaks to Abram. This belongs to the essence of the nature of the covenanted grace of God. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred, And your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. If you were to look at that text just carefully, you notice from verse 2 and verse 3, the verb or noun form of bless appears five times. Look at how striking it is. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who then bless you. And you will bless all of the families of the earth. You see, God's unilateral promise of blessing is central to the entire engagement of the covenant of grace. It is unilateral. But you notice how in the covenant treaty of works there are conditions placed upon Adam to perform. But here in the initial stages of the covenant of grace there's unilateral provision and promise. Did you see that? God spoke to Abram and simply put forward pure blessing and promise. That's a different covenantal arrangement, strikingly different than the way that he spoke with Adam. Again, if we were to take Abram's entire account, that he simply here is a, a moon worshiper in the land of the Chaldeans, and then the God of creation speaks forward to him out of his own darkness and delivers him and draws him into the light we could say so clearly in the picture of the gospel here that Abram could could sing alongside of us the song that we have sang so many times here "A Redeemer, all I have is Christ. It's, It's no different. Materially, it's no different between Abram and us. Between Abram and how he received faith than any other pagan. Just like us. So we have sang, and I would put forward, so would Abram. I once was lost in darkest night. Right? So Terah fathered Abram. Terah was in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram's wife was Sarai. Haran the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren, she had no children. Tara took Abram, his son, and Lot, son of Haran, his grandson, Sarah Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife, and they went forward together to where? To, to, from Ur of the Chaldeans, where they were, to the land of Canaan. But they didn't get there. They settled in Haran. I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. I had no hope, here he is, Ur of the Chaldeans, in the land of Haran, worshiping the moon as though it could deliver him. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And then these words that we have sang so often, materially no different in Abram. And if you had not loved me first... I would refuse you still. Now the Lord said to Abram, I will make you a great nation. Do you see the dynamics? Abram's doing nothing to compel God to condescend and save him and to covenant graciousness with him. So I would just conclude with Abram, just briefly, but as I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless estate and led me to the cross. It materially is no different. Here's Abram, and now the Lord spoke to him. Now, notice the promised blessings that belong to verses 1 through 3, the promised blessings of this covenant of grace, that they really belong to God's intentional promises and blessings that he was going to pour forth at creation. Look at verse 1 through 3 real quick, just um, briefly. Um, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. That's just, that's just what you're going to do. This is, this is what I'm telling you, because this is what I'm going to do for you and in you. Again, of no compel, not being compelled to do so, simply graciously pouring it forth. I will make you a great nation. I will make of you, or I will make, uh, uh, and I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who then bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse, and then you, every family of the earth, will be blessed. You see, Much like Adam that we covered just a a couple of weeks ago, much like Adam in the covenant of works, God promises Abraham the same things, essentially. He promises to Abraham a people, a place, and his very own presence as a blessing. Why? Why does he give him essentially the same covenant promises that he gave to Adam in the covenant of works? Because he's going to put everything back into place that Adam had lost. One author comments this way, These are not random promises. Which ones? I, I will make, I will make a, you a blessing, I will give you a land, and I will give you a people. These are not random promises that happened to pop up into God's head as he visited Abraham. Rather, God's original plan was to have a paradise world filled with people in his image, enjoying life with him in harmony and union. Satan ruined that plan. But surely that wouldn't be the end of the story. God's honor was at stake. And so God here initiates a new relationship with Abram of what we call the covenant of graciousness or the covenant of grace. It is a unilateral covenant whereby God comes to you, sinner, and provides for all of your needs. Now, some time does occur between chapter 12, where God just speaks to the pagan Abram, drawing him out of darkness, get off your knees, stop worshiping the moon, I am the true and living God. I speak to you, and you come to me, and what are we going to do here in this arrangement? I am going to do something for you in this arrangement. I'm going to unilaterally bless you. I'm going to take you, and I'm going to do this for you. That language is much different than the covenant of works. Now, time elapses. Let's go from chapter 12 and jump with me over a page or two to chapter 15. where then the covenant that God initiates with Adam, or excuse me, initiates with Abram in uh, the first three verses of chapter 12, this is what he's going to do to the man Abram. And he told Abram, "You have to now leave. You need to leave your country, your family, leave everybody behind and move forward. And this is what I'm going to do for you. This is where we're going, and this is what I'm going to do. And then that brings us Abram's actions to leave, takes us through 12, 13, 14, and here we are in Genesis 15, where this actual covenant that is said in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 12, Abram, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to make you this, I'm going to give you that, and you're going to be this to all peoples. This of what I'm going to do is going to be formally, ceremonially made a covenant formal arrangement in chapter 15 here. So let's look at the text. I'll jump in at around verse 7. And we'll touch upon some of these things next week in our last sermon on the covenant of grace. But let me read verse 7. I'm going to read all the way down uh, through 18. So this is where what was said in verses 1 through 3 of 12 is now being kind of um, ceremoniously uh, ratified right here where it takes its formal constitution uh, and a binding relationship between God and Adam to fulfill all that God had promised Verse 7, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. That word of sovereign grace. Do you see that that, that, that is the, the, the contents or, or the preamble to a covenant of grace? When, when, you, when you give praise for your own redemption, your own salvation, that the fact that your faith does terminate in Jesus Christ, This is the structure of why your faith terminates in Jesus Christ. God says, I am the Lord who took you out of Egypt and brought you unto myself. That's the story. That's how it happened. This is what he's reminding Abraham in the preamble. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans. For what? To give you this land to possess. But look at Abram's faith, so often like our own's, of course. But he said, O oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Right, right here, Abram's hearing these tremendous promises and wrestling with these covenantal promises. He now has left on an epic journey right to then leave his family. And his faith is wavering. How will I know that I will come to possess such a covenantal promise? How will I know? How can I be sure? As if verse 7 wasn't enough. But again, to our wavering faith, God then provides an objective, absolutely concrete, clear element. So often we think as well in the context of the Lord's Supper. Our own doubting Thomas. How do we know that your promises for us in the gospel, in the shed blood of our Lord and the body that it was raised, how do we know that those promises are immutable and will not fade away? Well, I give you an object to receive of, to taste of, to experience once again that these promises, so surely as I am here and this blood was shed, it was shed for you and it will never fade away. For often we, as believers, still within this great covenant of grace, doubt, how can I know for sure that I'll inherit such promises? So Abram has the same wavering faith. Verse 9, so he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Right? This, don't lose track. Verse 9 is an answer to verse 8. How will I know? Okay, mm, I could say it, but no, here we go. Okay, bring me this list of animals. I'm going to definitively answer you, Abram, that I am the Lord who took you out from Ur, and I am making you great. Verse 10, And he brought him all of these, and he cut them in half, and he laid each half over against the other. But he said... Um, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down onto the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now, you figure that was a lot of work right there, right? We can fast forward through the butchering, but, but it did take some time. you got to collect the animals, bring them, work, lay them out, cut them into pieces, so on and so forth, right? Just like at, at, at sacrifice time, that was a lot of blood, a lot of time, a lot of butchering going on. It, there, there, so, so this didn't happen like he ran over there and he went, shh, 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 shh. Right, so no, like it's like like we're in a big effort here on Abraham's part, answering verse A. How will I ever know that I truly will rest upon these promises? Okay, go do this, go do this, go do this. Abram's doing all that, and now watch a dramatic shift in the text, verse twelve. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. It's incredible. Further, he describes it even more so. Moses says, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. He was just just doing this, doing this, doing this, doing this. And we're moving up to this climactic moment, this massive covenantal ceremony. How will I know that I will inherit? How will I know these covenantal promises are mine, immutable, given to me by you of pure grace? How will I know? They seem staggering, overwhelming. How will I know? Okay, do this, do this, do this, do this. And right upon this climactic crescendo, this massive moment, falling asleep, God out cold. What? Isn't that odd? Does it strike you? And not only did a deep sleep, God put a deep sleep upon him, a great heavy darkness rested upon Abram. What's gonna, oh, oh, how, does that, how does that work in the covenant-making procedure? Verse 13, Then the Lord said to Abram, Stop doubting. Right? Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark. Which picks back up with verse 12. The sun was going down and a deep sleep fell upon Abram. Behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land. Now, historically speaking, the overall ceremony is not that odd. That, 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 you know, It's odd to us that the way that we would receive some measure of assurance and covenant-making procedures that we would slaughter some animals and separate them side by side so that we could create a hallway in between them and walk in between the cut pieces. Sure, that seems odd. But in this ancient Near East context, it was not odd at all to Abram. Kings made covenants that would often use the symbolism of slaughtered animals as witness. And what do they symbolize? What do they witness? The seriousness of keeping the covenant arrangement. If the lesser party in the arrangement, which we would clearly identify as Abram, which is the significant piece, that's where the story just goes like this. and The entire trajectory changes if the lesser party in the arrangement didn't keep his end of the bargain, well, he has physical testimony that speaks to his end. In other words, he will end up like the animals who are here cut from stem to stern. You pass through the ceremony hallway and the animals scream witness to you. Of the sobriety of your passage. Where it gets incredibly odd is not the fact of the covenant or the covenant making procedure, but the nature of this covenant is where it gets really odd. In other words, what we see here is the covenant of grace. In two very distinct ways. Not the covenant of working. But a covenant of graciousness. In two very distinct ways. In the covenant making procedure. Number one. The oddity that yet speaks to the nature of God's covenant with us. As our faith rests upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that God places Abraham in a deep sleep. That piece, don't skip over when you're reading such a passage. That is the very first thing that stands out to us about the nature of the entire covenant making procedure. God puts Abram in a deep sleep. In other words, what do we glean from this about the covenant itself or the nature of the covenant? The fact that Abram is put into a deep sleep, almost near comatose-like state. As Moses says, he fell upon, a deep sleep fell upon him. And behold, it's even more so, dreadful and great darkness fell upon Abram. And during that time, during that time a smoking fire pot and flaming torch passed through the pieces. You see, Abram, in this covenantal arrangement, in order, how will I know that I will come to possess the promises? God says, this is how. You will be a passive spectator to my covenantal activity. In other words, It doesn't rest upon you, Abraham, to fulfill the conditions of this covenant. No, 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 the whole whole ceremony, it doesn't work like that. I, I, lesser, defer to you, greater. I cut the animals. I make the procedure. I lay them out as appropriate. And then I pass through it. I receive from you, the greater. I take the pathway of... Death. I say, I will do it. I will. You're, you're going to make my name great. I'll do what you want. I will do it. I will pass through the animals. I'll do, I'll meet the conditions of the covenant, whereby you can then confer your pledge and promise upon me. That's not how a covenant of graciousness works. No, I'm going I'm to get ready to pass through. I've got the animals all set up. I've got my hallway. I'm ready to go. And Deep sleep falls upon Abram. He is a passive observer of God's covenantal activity. This is the essence of the covenant of graciousness. The second piece, where we see it's a bit odd because it's a covenant of graciousness instead of a covenant of working, is not just simply that God places Abram in a deep sleep. At the very moment Abram is supposed to act, but the second piece is what we have briefly touched on, and that is simply this. God walks through the animals in Abram's stead. The, the, in, in the, the, firing, the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch, they're sign and symbol of God, his own presence. So Abram is laying there in this deep sleep, And God is speaking to him the contents of this covenant. This is what's going to happen in redemptive history. This is the nation that I'm going to build out of your loins, Abram. Out of you. This is what I'm going to make. I'm going to make a great people. I'm going to give them this land. And this is how it's going to historically develop. And Abram's hearing the contents and the blessings of the covenant. And he's laying there and he's not able to act. Because the covenant arrangement is not one for him to act upon. He is being acted upon. And the right one, he would take the pledge to do what you would require. Abram's laying there and cannot, and he sees a fire pot and a torch take his place and pass through them. You see, God is taking upon himself the conditions for fulfilling the covenant promises. God's answer to the question of Abram's lack of surety of survival, his answer is to pledge his very own life. God is answering verse 8 in the strongest and most absolute terms possible. Look again in verse 8. O Lord God, how am I to know that I will possess it? Verse 12. A deep sleep fell on Abram. Indeed, a dreadful and great darkness. Verse 17. During this exact same time period when the sun had gone down and it was dark and Abram was laying there passively, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. And then the promise of pledge. Verse 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Saying to your offspring, I give this land. You see the passivity of Abraham and the activity of God belongs to the very essence of the covenant of grace. Once again, the covenant of grace is not dependent on people's good works. But on God's free offer of forgiveness and grace. In conclusion, if we were to draw out, what is this teaching us about our own life in the Lord? The question is the same. We would ask it this way. How is one saved from his or her sins and unrighteousness? How? By what manner? By what means? How is someone saved from their sinful condition? You can go right back to Genesis 12 and look. Here's Abraham in said condition. And yet he is delivered. The answer would simply be this. He is saved through faith by grace alone. And that's in verse 6. And you'll see it and we'll touch on it next week. But it's the same for every individual in every era of human history. Verse 6 is the same. And he believed the Lord. And he counted to him as righteousness. And yet that immediate moment of faith and righteousness wavered by the time you got one verse further. Again, in the covenant of grace, to say it this way, to say that we are saved by grace alone is simply to say that we are saved, each and every one of us, by God alone. It is God in this text, not Abraham, who will repair the damage that was done by Adam. That's the key to the covenant of grace. And it brings us to the vital distinction between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. And this is where I conclude with you this morning, our time together. It is simply this. While both covenants, that is, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, while both covenants lead to the same blessings, right? Blessings of eternal life. While while both covenants lead to the same blessings, and both ultimately have the same curses, the conditions are radically opposed. In the covenant of works, people are required to live sinless lives in order to inherit the eternal reward. Whereas in the covenant of grace, we look wholly to God to unilaterally provide the righteousness required. That's the free offer of the gospel. The content of the covenant of graciousness. Let us pray. Father, we ask that you would strengthen us in your word of gospel.